0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening a 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War One now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is November 8th, 2017, and we have a big lineup of guests for you this week, nine in all, including... Mike Schuster, from the Great War Project blog. Gavin McElvena, President of the Society of the Honor Guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Nancy Flannery and Rob Spurl from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Wheaton, Illinois. Mark Wartman, author, historian, and journalist. Daryl Dorgan, Chairman of the North Dakota World War I Centennial Committee. Michael and Ann Knutson authors of Warriors in Khaki, and Catherine Akey, the show's line producer and the commission's social media director. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the chief technologist for the commission and your host. Welcome to the show. This week, a hundred years ago, in both the official bulletin, the U.S. government's Daily War Gazette, and the New York Times, there are stories about the first American prisoners of war captured by the Germans. This got us thinking about the subject of POWs in World War I. What were the rules? I mean, the Geneva Convention that we usually think of when we think of prisoner of war treatment today generally refers to treaties from 1949, after World War II. And those were updated from two treaties pulled together in 1929. And prior to the 20th century, the treatment and rights for combatants was pretty harsh. There were attempts to develop some kind of humanitarian standards through much of the second half of the 1800s after the Crimean War. But what was the story with POWs in World War I? How many were there? Did the Red Cross play a role? And what about American POWs? So that's the theme we're going to explore in today's World War I Centennial News Then. What was happening a hundred years ago in the war that changed the world? It's the first week of November, 1917. The Europeans have been at war for over three years, but early this week, as they are training in a relatively quiet area of the Western Front, a company of American soldiers gets raided by German forces. Three are killed, five are wounded, and 12 Americans get captured. Dateline, Sunday, November 4, 1917. The headline in the New York Times reads, Attack before daylight. Forces in training held small salient of the front-line trenches. Pershing tells of loss. And the story reads, Armed forces under the American flag have had their first clash with German soldiers in an attack which the Germans made on the first-line trenches, which the United States troop had taken for instruction." Three Americans were killed, five wounded, and 12 captured. Now, the Germans respond to the incident with a taunting article in Berlin's Lokal anzeiger newspaper. Dateline, Sunday, November 4, 1917. Another headline in the New York Times reads, Berlin rejoices over American prisoners. Lokal anzeiger newspaper extends welcome. The story goes on to read, The Berlin newspaper played up the capture of the Americans in their headline under the captions, Good morning, boys, and goes on to include, Three cheers for the Americans. Clever chaps they are. It cannot be denied. Scarcely have they touched the soil of this putrefied Europe when they are already forcing their way into Germany. It is our good fortune that we are equipped to receive and entertain numerous guests and that we are able to provide quarters for these gentlemen. However, we cannot promise them doughnuts and jam, and to this extent they will be obliged to recede from their former standard of living." Above all, they will find comfort in the thought that they are rendering their almighty president, Mr. Wilson, valuable services, inasmuch as it is asserted that he is anxious to obtain reliable information concerning conditions and sentiments in belligerent countries. As Americans are accustomed to travel in luxury and comfort, we assume that these advanced arrivals merely represent couriers for a larger number to come. We are sure the latter will come and will be gathered in by us. And the propaganda war is in full swing on all sides, as exemplified in an article published in the U.S. government's official bulletin. Dateline, Tuesday, November 6, 1917. Headline, German soldiers forced to murder their helpless foes and prisoners. Germans tell terrifying details in letters. In the story, it reads... The Committee on Public Information makes public herewith three letters taken from one of its forthcoming pamphlets, German War Practices. Here is the protest of a German soldier, an eyewitness to the slaughter of Russian soldiers in the Masurian lakes and swamps. It was frightful, heartrending, as these masses of human beings were driven to destruction. Above the terrible thunder of the cannons could be heard the heart-rending cries of the Russians. But there was no mercy. Our captain had ordered, The whole lot must die, so rapid fire! And as I have heard, five men and one officer on our side went mad from those heart-wrenching cries. The most of my comrades and officers joked as helpless Russians shrieked for mercy while they were being suffocated in the swamps and shot down. The order was... Close up and add it harder. For days afterwards, those yells followed me, and I dare not think of them, or I should have gone mad. There is no God, there is no morality, and no ethics anymore. There are no human beings anymore, but only beasts. I say, down with militarism. This was from a letter by a Prussian soldier, as reported by the U.S. government. Now, from a Wikipedia entry entitled World War One Prisoners of War in Germany, it states, From the beginning of the war, the German authorities find themselves confronted with an unexpected influx of prisoners. In September of 1914, at the beginning of the war, 125,000 French soldiers and 94,000 Russian soldiers are made captive. Early the following year, in 1915, The number of prisoners held captive in Germany reaches 652,000 and then rises even more quickly. From February to August 1915, it goes from 652,000 to 1,045,000. One year later, in August of 1916, it reaches 1.6 million and then reaches just over 2.4 million prisoners of war by October 1918. This experience gives Germans a strong foundation in the implementation, operation, and exploitation of large POW and labor camps. Know how they will exploit again in the future. Preparing to deal with American POWs, the U.S. government makes plans with the American Red Cross to help care for our captured doughboys. Dateline, Wednesday, November 7, 1917. The headline of the official bulletin reads, Red Cross Plans to Feed U.S. Prisoners in Germany. The story goes on with, Arrangements for supplying food and clothing to American prisoners of war in Germany have been worked out in detail by the War and Navy Departments and the American Red Cross. Since the beginning of the war, England and France have met Germany's inadequate care of its prisoners by sending supplies of their own, and in the main, the system has operated successfully. To support American soldiers and sailors who may be captured and confined in German prison camps, the dispersing agent of the Red Cross at Bern, Switzerland, will be supplied with 4,500 tons of food immediately. This will comprise 1,800,000 individual rations, or enough to feed 10,000 men adequately for six months. Now, surprisingly... These preparations are overspecified. The fact is that the U.S. POW count winds up being pretty low at just above 4,100 soldiers, even with over 2 million soldiers in the field. This may speak to the nature of the American Expeditionary Forces campaign style and few battles where the forces are captured wholesale. Contrast this to the currently ongoing Battle of Caporetto where 265,000 Italian soldiers are captured by the Prussians. And speaking of the Battle of Caporetto, two names pop up connected to that battle that our listeners may be familiar with. Supporting the Austrians is a young German captain who will emerge in World War II as a major military strategist, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox. On the U.S. side, There's a young ambulance driver who will emerge after the war as one of the giant figures of literature, Ernest Hemingway, who was wounded in this battle and used his experience as a basis for his 1929 novel, A Farewell to Arms. These notes on the Battle of Caporetto were sent in to me by my cousin Michael, who's a military cryptologist and who wanted to point out that the use of SIGINT or signal intelligence, strategic decoding of battlefield radio communications, played a key part in Caporetto, used by the Austrians to wipe out and capture Italy's artillery. But perhaps the biggest and most impactful story a 100 years ago this week is the end of the war on the Eastern Front, as Russia formally drops out of the fight. Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of The Great War Project blog is here to tell us about it. Welcome, Mike.
1: Thanks, Theo. The headlines 100 years ago, the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia. War on the Eastern Front is over. Lenin and Trotsky announce end to hostilities. And this is special to The Great War Project. The Russian provisional government is collapsing and reports historian Martin Gilbert, it was too late to restore the disintegrating situation. Nothing could counter the great swell of anti-war opinion. On this day, a century ago, it was learned in Petrograd that Russian troops on the Baltic front had thrown down their arms and begun to fraternize with their German enemy. The provisional government in Petrograd, the Russian capital, orders the 155,000 strong Petrograd garrison to go to the front. Reports Gilbert, they refuse under pressure from the Bolshevik military committee. The following day, the government of liberal Alexander Kerensky is ordered to enter the city on November 6. They refuse. At the same time, reports historian Gilbert, the Bolsheviks occupied the principal buildings in the capital, the railway stations, the bridges over the river Neva, which runs through the city, the state bank, and most importantly, the telephone exchange. The second revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, is at hand. On well, November 7th a century ago, more than 18,000 Bolsheviks surrounded the provisional government ministers in the Winter Palace, defended by a mere thousand soldiers. More than 9,000 revolutionary sailors entered the city, then 4,000 anti kerensky soldiers. More firepower enters Petrograd and takes key strategic positions. Warships also take up key positions and announce their support for the Bolshevik revolution. The cruiser Aurora, anchored in the city and controlled by the Bolsheviks, announces it will open fire on the Winter Palace. It fires off blank charges, but the city is shaken. The Bolsheviks overrun the palace, reports Gilbert, scattering its defenders. Vladimir Lenin is elected chairman, putting him in charge of the Russian capital. Leon Trotsky is named Commissar of Foreign Affairs. It could not possibly last, declares the daughter of the British ambassador, an observer of these extraordinary events. It could not possibly last. Petrograd itself might perhaps be forced to submit to such a rule for a short time, but that the whole of Russia be governed by such men, she observes, was not credible. Hardly so, reports historian Gilbert. The six-month-old provisional government had been swept away as assuredly as the Tsar had been swept away before it. In Moscow, Red Guards occupy the Kremlin. The Americans help Kerensky avoid capture. He flees Petrograd in an American embassy car, intending to rally forces loyal to the provisional government. Kerensky sends a message to the American ambassador, beseeching him not to recognize the Bolshevik government. On November 2nd, a century ago, the new government announces a decree of peace. Lenin reads it to a delirious crowd. In the following days, four million copies of the decree are printed and sent to the front, calling for an end to all hostilities. Reports Gilbert, the war-making power of Russia, hitherto the eastern arm of the Allies, was broken. And that's the extraordinary news from a century ago in the Great War Project.
0: Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. If you need a little World War I video action, we recommend The Great War Channel on YouTube, hosted by Indy Neidell. This week's new episodes include The Battle of Beersheba, Canadian Frustration. Another, Breakthrough and Setbacks, Fall of 1917. And the last episode, as we covered last week, Zionism during World War I. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. Now we're going to fast forward into the present to World War I centennial news now and explore what's happening to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. On this Veterans Day weekend, we're going to start with a special guest, retired Sergeant Major Gavin Macalvina. President of the Society of the Honor Guard for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. One of the most iconic images of remembrance during any Memorial or Veterans Day is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, guards at attention, rain or shine, honoring our fallen with a serious, heartfelt solemnity and devotion to the duty that they're performing. Gavin has been one of those guards, and it's our privilege to have him here with us today to give us some insight into those men and women that life and the job that they do. Welcome, Gavin.
2: Thank you, Taylor, and thank you for having me on.
0: Gavin, how did the tradition of honoring an unknown soldier begin, and what was the idea behind it?
2: Well, back in 1920, both Britain and France honored their unknown warriors from World War I in respective ceremonies on November 11th, and Congressman Hamilton Fish of New York created legislation that was calling for the selection, transportation, and burial of an unknown soldier from the American Expeditionary Forces to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Congress approved this in early of 1921, and the U.S. Army Quartermaster Corps began the process of identifying an unknown soldier in France and then bringing them home to Arlington. Congressman Fish intended the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to be a focal point for all Americans, bringing them all together, and its meaning not just limited to the Great War and the exclusive claim of that war's veterans. The sowing honor on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier has evolved over the years, uh, as initially designated to give closure to those whose loved ones and very identities were lost on the field of battle. And over time, it has evolved into a national shrine that honors all who have made that ultimate
0: sacrifice. So for those who stand guard over the Unknown Soldier, what does it mean to them?
2: Well, the Sentinel's mission is to maintain the highest standards and traditions of the United States Army in this nation while keeping a constant vigil at this national shrine and preventing it from any desecration or disrespect. We know that the tomb and the unknown soldiers allows many families across the United States. It gives them a place to come and remember their loved one who did not return home from war, regardless of what war they fell in. Tomb guards want Americans to look past the sentinel who walks the mat and reflect on those unknown soldiers that are buried on the plaza and and what they individually represent. Each Sentinel develops their own bond with the unknown soldiers that they stand watch over. And for me, it was my way of ensuring that their sacrifice would never be forgotten. And it was a small gesture of thanks allowing for my family to live in a country in a manner that we do now uh, by unknown Americans who gave their tomorrow for our today.
0: Gavin, are there unknowns from multiple conflicts, or just World War One? Well,
2: Taylor, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is the final resting place for the World War One unknown soldier. That's the tall sarcophagus that everybody sees. But just to the west are three crypts, and in those crypts, uh, you have the World War Two and Korean War unknown soldiers that were buried uh, in 1958. Then there's a center crypt that held the remains of the Vietnam War Unknown Soldier who was buried in 1984 and then disinterred and later identified in 1998. And since midnight to July of 1937, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier has been guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, regardless of the weather.
0: All right, you're the president of the Society of the Honor Guards of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. What's the Society's mission?
2: That's a good question. We're a 501C3 nonprofit organization that's made up of current and former Tomb Guards, uh, as well as individuals in various organizations that have an affinity for a mission of protecting and enhancing the welfare or image of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, as well as the Sentinels who stand the watch. Um, We generally try and get out and educate the public about the Tomb and about the United States' uh, unknown war heroes while preserving our histories and traditions related to the tomb.
0: All right. The Society is preparing for the centennial of the very first unknown soldier selected in 1921. Can you tell us a bit more about those commemoration plans?
2: You know, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is one of those few memorials that that transcends the historic context of its creation. And it's not just about World War One. It has the other unknown soldiers buried there as well. So as we started looking towards the centennial in 2021, we wanted to find a way to really educate America about this national monument. And one of the primary things that we're doing is something called the National Salute. The National Salute actually happened on November 11th, 1921, during the internment of the World War One unknown soldier. And this is where the nation itself paused, for a minute to remember all of the soldiers who fell in the great war. And then they paused again, this time remembering the soldiers that will, in the future, fall for the defense of our nation. So what we've been doing is asking communities to come together, especially in these time and days in America, to come together and to pause on November 11th at 11 o'clock and ring bells in their community, ring them 21 times, and then pause to reflect on the sacrifices of all the veterans who served, all of the veterans who have fallen. And we, again, started this in about 2015, trying to reinstitute it across America. And so far, it's been pretty successful. But, of course, we're looking to get more and more communities involved in this. I know that one of the things we try and do is we try and get people to you know visit the website, go to the Facebook page. And if they are going to participate, all they have to do is send us an email letting us know so that we can track it at the national level, which we do, and then we send something out every single year. And all they have to do is contact us at publicaffairs at tombguard.org and let us know that they and their community are participating, and we'll make sure to mention them in our social media platforms.
0: Gavin, thank you so much for being here and your great service.
2: Thank you, Dale.
0: Gavin McElvena is the president of the Society of the Honor Guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. We have links for you in the podcast notes to learn more. And now for our feature, Speaking World War One," where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. In World War I, Australian soldiers earned an outstanding reputation. They fought in many of the great theaters of the war, Gallipoli, Damascus, Gaza, the Somme, Ypres, and Passchendaele. Right from the beginning, though, They were seen as trouble by the English officers. They were brash, boisterous, undisciplined. They dressed improperly, and they didn't even shave every day. But they fought like Tasmanian devils, and if you've ever hung out with Australians, you'll know that they were just being their very cool, very natural Aussie selves, considering the English officers is uptight arses. The Australians are also masters of slang in their gruff but goofy style. So it's no surprise that they came up with a wonderfully nonsensical yet descriptive term for an uptight arse, a dingbat. A bit of an insult, a bit of a description. The word dingbat has an earlier origin, being used since the early 19th century, much like the word thingamajig, a placeholder when you don't quite know what to call something. Today, the word's main use is as a computer type font. Filled not with letters, but with symbols, shapes, and objects. So if you always thought of dingbat as a fancy asterisk, in World War I, it's simply a different kind of asterisk. See the podcast notes to learn more. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials segment, about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. To start, we just have to plug the fact that we're now taking grant applications for the second round. We have matching grants to give away, but you need to submit the application before January 15, 2018. Go to www.1cc.org slash 100memorials to learn more about it. Now this week, we're profiling the World War I obelisk in Wheaton, Illinois, one of the first 50 awardees of the 100 available grants. With us to tell us about their project are Nancy Flannery, Chair of the City of Wheaton Historic Commission, and Rob Spurl, Director of Parks and Planning, Wheaton Park District. Welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you, Tao. Nancy, in your grant application for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, you said, quote, the U.S. participation in World War I not only changed the population of Wheaton, Illinois, it defined Wheaton as a community willing to fight for its beliefs, unquote. What did you mean by that?
3: Well, Wheaton is a very interesting place. It was founded basically as a small agricultural community, which was enhanced commercially when the Galena and Chicago Union Railroad went through Wheaton. Two factors came in one was the presence of Wheaton College which always had a very driven mandate to support certain causes, such as abolition, women's rights, and reform issues. And we also had Robert McCormick, who was a Wheaton resident, and who of course became Colonel Robert McCormick, uh, the Big Red One, the first infantry division. So Wheaton, when World War I came about, really responded to the call The women of Wheaton organized in a way that you would not believe. The men of Wheaton volunteered. Even though we had a population of about 3,500, 500 500 men enlisted from Wheaton. It was an overwhelmingly patriotic response here. Uh, Nancy, how did the obelisk come about? Well, in part, that was because of Colonel McCormick. Colonel McCormick used his position as owner of the Chicago Tribune to really promote the road of remembrance idea. Back in the 20s, people in America wanted to build memorials so that they would always remember the sacrifices made by the men who had fought in World War I. And Colonel McCormick was a member of the American Forestry Association, which promoted this idea. And since he owned the Trib, Of course, you know, he just kept the news stories current and everything. Well, they decided they would put in a road of remembrance in Wheaton. It started at the Warren Wheaton House at Naperville and Roosevelt Road. It involved the planting of 500 elm trees, perhaps an unfortunate choice. But, you know, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. And they made these two large bronze plaques and they had the names of all 500 men on these plaques. Well, in order to display them, they came up with the design of an obelisk, which started the Road of Remembrance here in Wheaton. There was also a small cannon that was there on guard by the obelisk. Then in 1930, they decided to enlarge Roosevelt Road, so they took down the obelisk with the plaques. They moved the elm trees to Northside Park. And then they, they put the plaques on a new obelisk, which now stands in Northside Park. That was completed and dedicated in 1936. Of course, because of time and weather and everything, the obelisk started to deteriorate, which was why we were thrilled about the opportunity for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorial Grant.
0: Rob. I noticed that your project is scaled well over $50,000 and that the Park Board of Commissioners committed to covering the rest. How did that happen?
4: Well, Teo, we had an initial budget for this project of $40,000. Now, that was following hiring some restoration consultants, Restoric, um, out of Chicago who developed plans and specifications for the monument. So after the bids came in, our low bid was $55,000 on it. So it it was a pretty substantial undertaking for them, but we are fortunate to have a board that's always been committed to preserving history in our community. So it was extremely helpful for for our board to see the grant come through and to understand the national significance of this project.
0: So is the project finished? Do you have plans for a rededication?
4: We do, we have a very exciting day coming up. So on Veterans Day, Saturday, November 11th, we'll be doing a dedication of the obelisk at 10 a.m. That will be followed by our annual Veterans Day commemoration that's put on by the American Legion Post 76. And then later in the day at the DuPage Historical Museum, we're going to be finishing up with a program of songs from World War I. So we're very excited for Saturday. Project is finished. So this is, this is the unveiling of, uh, of the restored monument.
3: And if I could just interject something, too, the American Legion post-76 is the Laverne T. Perreté post, and Laverne T. Perrette was one of the 13 men out of the 500 who died. Laverne died in battle, in the battle which Cantini, which was Robert McCormick's farm, was renamed. So it's it's so fitting that this post is coming forward to participate in the, in the rededication.
0: Well, thank you for coming in. Thank, thank you. you.
3: Thank you very much, Tao.
0: Nancy Flannery is the chair of the City of Wheaton Historic Commission, and Rob Spurl is the director of Parks and Planning, Wheaton Park District. We're going to continue to profile 100 Cities, 100 Memorial Projects, not only awardees, but also teams that are continuing on into round two, which is now open for submissions. You know, we're very proud of this program that's stimulating communities all over America to rediscover and readdress their heritage. A huge thanks to all of the participants. You can go to www.cc.org ccorg 100 memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about participating in this program. Today we're combining our Spotlight in the Media and our War in the Sky segments by speaking with Dr. Mark Wartman, historian, journalist, and author, about his book, The Millionaire's Unit The Aristocratic Flyboys Who Fought in the Great War and Invented American Air Power. And the book inspired a recently released award winning documentary. Welcome, Mark.
5: Thank you for having me, Dale.
0: So, Mark, The Millionaire's Unit recounts the history of the first Yale unit. Can you give us an introduction to who this unit was and what they did during the war
5: sure the first yale unit was a group of yale college students who came from immensely privileged backgrounds in 1916 they believed that the u.s was going to get into world war I and the united states had little or no preparation for that war and so They being among the most privileged young men in the country, uh, one was a Rockefeller, one was a Taft, one was the son of the head of J.P. Morgan and Company, another was the son of the head of the Union Pacific. Uh, They decided to use their own family funds and form a private air militia. They started off as a summer flying club. They returned to Yale College, where they formed a campus flying club that grew to be 28 members. And when the U.S. was going into the war, even before April 1917, they were called up as the first Yale unit, and they enlisted en masse. They became the founding squadron of the U.S. Naval Air Reserve. And as the U.S. went to war with, at that time, far fewer than 100 naval pilots, they all formed what became the nucleus of the Navy's air service in the war. Out of this group came the first American in uniform to fly in France, the first American to fly a heavy bomber, the architect of the first U.S. strategic bomber force, the Navy's first air ace in its entire history. and. The first US aviator to give his life in air combat. They had an enormous impact in the brief time in which the US was at war in Europe. And then those who survived the war went on to play leading roles in the rise of US air power. Every single assistant secretary of war and navy for air right through World War II came from this group, as did the secretary of defense during the Korean War. They had just a tremendous impact on both the Great War itself, World War II, and the U.S.'s growth into a, a great power in the world.
0: Now, Catherine wanted to put in this question. How did this group end up in the Navy Air Service rather than the Army Air Service?
5: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. In 1916, there were a group of aviators, as I should say, Navy men, including Admiral Robert Perry and an amateur pilot named John Hay Hammond, who, along with others, uh, thought that the U.S. needed to have a coastal patrol to protect its shores from the possibility of U-boat raids against American ports, and they thought, what better than to create a reconnaissance patrol, flying boats, so that they could patrol along the U.S. coast. Now, they quickly developed into a much more sophisticated idea that they would train actually to fight in the war itself.
0: Mark, we've provided a link to our listeners to learn more about your book and about your audiobook on Audible but let's talk about the documentary for a
5: minute. How did that happen? Sure, yeah, it's, it's actually a wonderful story. One member of this group, a flyer named John Voorhees, who was later a 10-term congressman, his grandson, lives in Southern California he was in a bookstore he happened upon a pile of copies of my book The Millionaire's Unit and he looked at the cover and he said my god that's my grandfather there there's a picture of the first dozen members of the first Yale unit and he recognized his grandfather from when he was a 20 year old in this group this guy's name is Ron King Ron is a filmmaker he got in touch with me and asked if anybody was going to be making a documentary about it. And he said he wanted to do it. It took years for him and his partner, Derek Greer, to put it together, but they succeeded in creating a beautiful documentary with some of the best cockpit footage ever created of World War One flyers. Here's a clip from the film's trailer that just came out last week. In the summer of 1916, Two college juniors from Yale started an air militia in preparation for America entering World War I.
1: This was a group of affluent young men who voluntarily took up the challenge. They didn't have to.
5: If the United States was going to war, they wanted to take part and they wanted to The men of the Yale Flying Club, they felt they were privileged. Being the son of one of the most powerful men in the
1: world. And had an obligation to duty, honor, country. He saw the war in many ways as a higher calling. They all stepped up to the plate.
5: The savvy one, the fashionable one,
1: the football player, the quiet one. They flew hard and they played hard. He liked a good time. He liked the girls. The war was the greatest adventure of his life.
5: These daring young aviators became the first to fly for the United States in World War I. This was just 13 years after the Wright brothers.
1: The young Yale Flyers couldn't wait to get at the Germans. They talked about the excitement, the danger, the fear, nerves of meeting the enemy for the first time.
6: Unfortunately, fighting some of the very best pilots in
5: their best airplanes. some of them making the ultimate sacrifice.
0: Mark, it's a fascinating story about young men who used their privileged position in life to do what they clearly believed was the right thing, their duty. And the impact that they had still echoes today. Thank you so much for bringing us the story.
5: Thank you, Teo. It's been a privilege to speak with you.
0: Dr. Mark Wortman is a historian, journalist, and author. The Millionaire's Unit and accompanying documentary are linked in the podcast notes. This week in our updates from the states, we want to congratulate the World War I Centennial Committee from the Rough Rider State of North Dakota. They've just launched their website at ww one ccorg slash North Dakota, all one word, all lower case. We invited North Dakota World War I Centennial Committee Chairman, Daryl Dorgan, to join us. Welcome, Daryl. It's great to be with you. Daryl, tell us about your state World War I committee. How did it get established in North Dakota?
6: Well, it was a long time coming. Uh, for some reason or another, the previous governor that we had in North Dakota had never appointed anyone. And about uh, six months ago, uh, they came to me and asked me if I would do it. And so it's a committee. And uh, I've started making phone calls, got a, a bunch of other people to join us, and we're off, we're running, we got the website up. And uh, even more exciting than that is this week, most of the newspapers in North Dakota will be carrying a special edition on World War I and the state's participation in it, who served in it, who died in it.
0: Well, because as the chief technologist I helped support the process, I was fascinated to learn that the North Dakota website was built by a Microsoft hackathon. That's totally unique among our state publishing partners. How did that happen?
6: Well, I used to date Bill Gates' secretary. (laughs) That part of it's true. Also, the fact is that when we got a hold of this, uh, we were late in the running, as I told you earlier, and we desperately needed help from somebody who knew a lot about computers. The guy who knows more about computers than anyone in the state of North Dakota is the governor of North Dakota, who uh, worked for Microsoft and ran their operations here. I had been a reporter for 25 years, and on a Saturday night, I simply uh, texted him and told him what my problem was. And uh, he texted back within 15 minutes and said, within 15 minutes, someone from Microsoft will be contacting you. And they have been great. They, they uh, took over the project and they took over, they're building our website, they're maintaining it. And away we go.
0: Daryl, what was the North Dakota and World War One experience? How did the war affect the state?
6: Well, it affected it greatly. Uh, you know, there were there were 1,300 people that died out of North Dakota in World War I, and out of the small population we had, that, of course, would be an absolute thunderclap. But more importantly than that, you know, we are debating the, the issue of immigration in this country today. A lot of the people from North Dakota, the 30,000 who served, were immigrants and were not citizens. And specifically, you can point to the Native Americans, who are very proud of their heritage and are warriors. They were not even U.S. citizens yet. They were the first to step forward, among the first. Others were people who came to North Dakota to become homesteaders. And they came from places like Germany and Hungary, and they were buying into to becoming an Americans. They wanted a piece of the American dream. They stepped forward. So it, it was a, a, a big time in North Dakota. We, we even had a, a sedition trial in North Dakota. North Dakota became very patriotic overnight. And it was an interesting time. A lot was going on. It pulled this state together. We were a very young state at the time, but it pulled us together and and away way we went
0: and became part of the world. All right. You've told us some about it, but what are some of the committee's key projects in the coming year?
6: Well, I just told you about the one that's coming up with the newspapers across North Dakota. We worked with the North Dakota Newspaper Association on that and got uh, 23 people from various uh, universities to write different pieces for it. How did we get into the war? Who served in the war? Uh, what life was like on the home front, et cetera. But one of them that has 11 newspapers has built it into a special edition. We've asked them all to make it into a special edition. Their special edition is 28 pages long. And what Microsoft was able to do with that. They were able to tell us the name, address, everybody that served from North Dakota in World War I, and then everybody who died in World War One, and we can localize that. So when the packet went out to the local newspaper, they got this this packet of stories with two pictures for each story provided by the North Dakota Historical Society, and then they got a list of locals who participated in the war and those who died in the war, so they could all localize this special edition. We're doing that. That's the first big thing. The next thing we've got is there was a Memorial Trees Project uh, started in North Dakota following World War One, where trees were planted and they had markers put on them listing names of peoples and units. Most of those have been lost. We are now going back and trying to recover those and finding a lot of them. Also with memorials across the state, we are now cataloging those and bringing them back and and fixing them, repairing them. We've got a big event planned next year for the International Peace Garden. It lies on the Canadian-North Dakota border and hopefully we'll get a big event going up there because that was our big ally and it's the largest unprotected border in the world. And uh, several other celebrations that are planned around the state. One of them, which is kind of unique, is we intend to try and get uh, every veterans' organization in most small towns in North Dakota have a veterans group, and they have uh, a place to gather, which is kind of the social center. But we intend to ask them to go to their school districts and tell the school districts why. For instance, in my hometown, it's the Almer Zeke American Legion post. No one there can really tell you why a hundred years later, why it got that name. I can because I'm kind of a history buff, but they can use that to go and tell kids in schools. This is why it's the Omer Zeke American Legion Post. This is how it got the name and it leads them into a World War I thing. So we can start talking about World War I again today. Thank you, Daryl. Love to come on anytime. Okay.
0: Daryl Dorgan is the chairman of the North Dakota World War I Centennial Committee. Follow the North Dakota Committee by heading over to www.cc.org slash North Dakota or follow the link in the podcast notes. For our next story, we're going to stay in the Dakotas and look more into the service of those states, and specifically the World War I service by the Native American population. Michael J. Knutson and Ann G. Knutson are a husband and wife writing team and authors of multiple books on local World War One history in North Dakota. Welcome Knudsen's. Thank you.
7: Glad to be here, Tao.
0: Michael, how did the two of you end up writing books about the service of North Dakotans in World War I? Uh,
8: not long after my wife joined the North Dakota Air National Guard, I became interested in military insignia and military medals. And I discovered that after World War I, a number of communities in North Dakota gave out medals to all the veterans from their area. And we were living in the town of Lisbon in Ransom County, which is one of the counties that had medals made for each veteran with the veteran's name engraved on the back. And I became curious to find out how many veterans were being honored. So it took me Several years, just to track down all that information, That turned out as around 600 men and women. And in the process of writing that book, somebody else from Bismarck here had found some photos of some Native Americans from the 48th area on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And they realized that nothing had been written much yet about the Native American servicemen and there weren't very many people that were interested in doing research on World War 1 so they asked me if we would do that well i said you know i never lived on a reservation i wasn't sure that i could do justice to the the job but they uh, kind of persisted and we said well we'll we'll do our best and see what happens
0: and how does your latest book, Warriors and Khaki, differ from your earlier book, Ransom County's Loyal Defenders?
7: Uh, Warriors in Khaki is specifically about Native Americans, and rather than uh, being from one county, it's the entire
0: state of North Dakota. It's over 200 names. Earlier this year, we did a story about the UTTC International Pow Wow, and I heard about you guys. How were you welcomed by different tribal nations?
8: Well, it's not so easy when you walk into a community where you don't know the people. You generally have to visit a community more than once before people accept you and start helping you and providing you with information. Information is a valued item and they don't just give it out freely. It took us several years uh, we tried to get as many photos as we, we could, and the people seemed to really appreciate seeing a photo of their relatives in the uniform.
7: I think it helps a bit that I'm a veteran myself. You know, I've put in 28 years in the North Dakota National Guard. And also, the Native Americans appreciate their veterans, and so somebody who is trying to honor their veterans in a good way Is somebody that they're uh, also appreciate.
8: Well like I said um, you know the people don't know who you are at first and you know they're used to people coming in for a little bit then leaving and they never see them again and you know they don't always trust all the the people that that come down there on the reservation so you have to make friends and you know get accepted. One of the things about honoring the veterans there the big way that's done is at the, the powwows. And the smaller powwows in the smaller towns, you go to them and probably 80 to 90% of the people there are either veterans or families of veterans.
0: So what are you guys working on now?
7: Yeah, we're currently working on a book about the Native Americans from South Dakota who served in World War I. Uh, you may not be familiar with it, But the Standing Rock Reservation is is one of many that crosses the state line from South Dakota to North Dakota. And a local guy down there pointed out to us that it was a little bit unfair to honor the veterans from half of the resident and ignore those from the other half, and he had a point, so we're fixing it.
8: These reservations basically were created before North Dakota became a, a state. They're one reservation. They don't see that imaginary state line that runs through the middle of it. So
7: Well, they, they see it, but they're, they're one group, even if some of them are physically here and some physically there on a different sides of the line. But, by the way, just to throw something else in, the... L- Lakota and Dakota and Nakota were among the people that were used as code talkers in World War I. A lot of people think of code talkers, they think of Navajos in World War II. But there were actually something like 30 Native American groups that were used as code talkers in different wars. But nobody's heard much about the ones in World War One because they were told to keep their mouths shut and they did. They were fast, they were accurate. And they were never broken. The British broke the Enigma Code in World War II, and the Americans broke the Japanese codes, but nobody ever broke the native language codes.
0: Michael, Anne, thank you for your time and your great books. Sure.
7: Our pleasure, too. Yep.
0: Michael J. Knudsen and Anne G. Knudsen write books about the Dakotas and the history of the region. You can find their website as well as their books in the link in the podcast notes. As we were prepping this week's section on articles and posts, I decided to take a quick look to see how many articles and posts we have on our website at one ccorg And just at that very moment, one of our interns, Eric Squazen, hit the enter button on article number 3600. Now, everything that's published on our website is mandated to be preserved in perpetuity by the U.S. government as a document of interest to the American people. And I'm proud to report we have lots and lots of stuff about World War One gathered here. And since we travel freely in time and space on this show, a little shout out to our friends in the future who are going to be running the bicentennial of World War One. So from all of us here in 2017 and 2018 who've been contributing to the website... Hey, you guys are welcome. In our write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week the post title is Pierre Lemaître, The Great Swindle, a prize-winning World War I novel hits the screen during France's Great War Centennial. The book, with its English title, The Great Swindle, is not only about a post-war traumatic experience, but it's also about the art, and yes, the money, that could be made by making a business out of the millions of dead bodies that had a hard time finding proper graves after the combat ended. French director Albert Dupontel released the film's adaptation of Le Maître's book early in 2017. Read more about the award-winning book and its accompanying film adaptation by visiting the right blog at WW1CC.org slash WWRITE, or by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War One this week in social media with Catherine Achey. So Catherine, what's going on in the world of social media this week?
9: Hello, Teo. It's Native American History Month this month in November, and this week we started to see a swell in posts and articles about the service of Native Americans in the war. I wanted to highlight a few really great Facebook pages to follow if you're interested in learning more about the history and commemorations of Native American service. The Facebook page World War I Native American Warriors is a fabulous resource connecting tribes from all across the country and sharing their individual events articles, and stories all in one place. Additionally, the Choctaw Code Talkers Association has a great Facebook page, and you can follow the progress of the Muskogee Doughboy Statue Restoration at the statue's official Facebook page, too. There's also the Native American Indian Veterans page, and of course, the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian is sharing a ton of amazing stories, photographs, and resources over the month. We'll also be having several Native American guests on the show over the course of this month and various guests working to commemorate the Native American story. Check the podcast notes for links to all of these pages. And that's it this week for The Buzz.
0: And that's World War I centennial news for November 8th, 1917 and 2017. Our guests this week were Mike Schuster with a look at Russia's revolution 100 years ago this week, Gavin McElvina with insights into the service of the Honor Guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Nancy Flannery and Rob Spurl for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Wheaton, Illinois. Mark Wartman with the story of the Millionaires Unit. Daryl Dorgan from the North Dakota World War I Centennial Committee. Michael and Ann Knutsen. writers with a huge expertise on Native American World War I warriors from North and South Dakota. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. Thanks to Eric Marr for his help with our story research. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This podcast is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And, of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. This week's featured webpage is www.cc.org slash memorial. Check it out. Big news there this week. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at one ccorg cn. On iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News. And on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices, just say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world.
5: It's time for every boy to be a soldier,
7: put his strength and courage to the test. It's time to place a musket on his shoulder and wrestle. (laughs)
5: And
0: right mate that's a fair dinkum show this week Time to belt up and crack a tinny, you dingbat. So long.